Grainy CCTV footage showed Sean walking up the street around 2.55am on Saturday the 19th of March 2011. Then there were bright car headlights. Then Sean was gone. By Tuesday afternoon, March 22nd, owing both to fine police work and the incredible stroke of luck that had seen a police patrol car pick up the suspect vehicle on its mounted camera, Steve Fulcher was able to take a major step in the investigation in identifying the driver of the vehicle, a man called Christopher John Halliwell. Debbie Peach was the Chief Constable's personal assistant who had been allocated to shadow Steve during the investigation to document each decision as it was made. At precisely 3.12pm, Steve and Debbie minuted a decision in the sensitive policy book. They were placing Halliwell under covert surveillance. Having identified that individual, it gave me a whole range of investigative options to pursue from that point on. As soon as we identified um, Christopher Halliwell, obviously I got Ripper authorities in place and placed him under surveillance. His home address under surveillance and his vehicle under surveillance. He more or less lives in his vehicle, so that was a 24-7 commitment as he took taxi fares and went wherever he went, which included in his first port of call was um, Swindon Police Station. Obviously, I had an intelligence cell running who would then immediately given the specific task of giving me as much information about Christopher Halliwell as possible. Now, he lived locally in Swindon. He was a taxi driver. He'd last come to notice of the police in 1986 and nothing since that time. He was in a relationship and had two daughters and a son, I think, from another relationship. To all intents and purposes, not an obvious suspect. Nothing glaringly obvious as to previous criminal history that would indicate that uh, a propensity to abduct Sean O'Callaghan. Steve was making a big call, redirecting all his investigative resources towards one significant lead. If he had called it wrong, it would mean his whole team was going the wrong direction. If he was right, of course, it meant they could make progress as quickly as possible towards finding Sean. Christopher Halliwell had only recently started working for a local taxi company. Steve immediately began inquiries to find out what they knew about their new employee. The first photograph of Christopher Halliwell came from his employer in the taxi company as part of his registration as a taxi driver. It's just a passport-sized photograph. It's actually quite accurate. It shows his facial features, very gaunt, very sallow skin, very distinctive eyes. But that's as much as I could, you can read from a uh, tiny photograph like that. You've got to bear in mind that where people look at this case at its conclusion 
I, of course, had very little information at the time. Is he an innocent taxi driver? Has he picked up Sean O'Callaghan and dropped her off somewhere? The taxi company were very, very helpful. We needed to know whether they had any um, passive data or electronic records that would give us his location data at the relevant period of time. The first question to the taxi company about the night Sean went missing was, was Halliwell working? And if so, what time did he finish? From the company's records, he had booked off duty at 1.30. Now, a lot of taxi drivers then do their own, uh, fill their own uh, boots in terms of taking on private fares outside that which has been registered with the company. So that isn't of itself particularly suspicious, but clearly we had footage of Halliwell driving around, clearly looking for either passengers or vulnerable women, I would suggest, during the course of that period from 1.30 all the way through to the nearly three o'clock in that uh, in that night. He'd turned off his sat-nav, he'd turned off his phone. So in terms of those kind of records, well, I saw that as suspicious, that uh, there's a reason why he's, he's done that, and that suspicion was compounded as we looked further and started a, a operation of surveillance. Steve knew that Halliwell was lying to his employer about his actions on the night of the abduction. Crucially, what he didn't do was arrest him. You have to make decisions which are irrevocable. Once you decide to make a preemptive approach, for instance, you can't then retract from that. If that was the feature that would have alerted him to our suspicions or changed his course of behaviour. This decision not to arrest was a big decision fraught with risk. Not everyone would have taken it. But as Steve saw it, the evidence they had to this point would never be enough to convict Halliwell. It was all circumstantial. Halliwell could still be, at this point, just an innocent taxi driver who picked Sean up and dropped her somewhere else. But aside from that, Steve had another, bigger reason to hold off from making an arrest. BBC journalist Steve Brody saw the drive behind this decision. It was about finding Sean O'Callaghan. The decision not to arrest Halliwell, the moment they placed him in his car uh, in the vicinity, that was a massive gamble by Steve Fulcher, a huge gamble. What happens if he'd murdered somebody else? Imagine the absolute uproar. But he was convinced that there was a hope that Shana Callan was still alive. That drove the entire investigation, that he wanted to find Shana Callahan. And, and he said, we will track this man. We will not arrest him. At one point, Hannibal took a fare from Swindon to Heathrow. And the team who were on it rang up and said, boss, he's going to Heathrow. He's doing a runner. Shall we arrest him? And Fortress said, no. Steve Fortress said, no, just stick on him. Steve Fulcher felt that if Halliwell had taken Sean, he could be holding her somewhere. The most important issue was Sean's safety. So all my decision-making was based on that fundamental priority. My view was that if we made a frontal approach, unless he told us where she was, she could be bound and gagged and we'd never find her. And that taking that preemptive course of action would actually cause her death. Therefore, there's only one way to do this, which is to prompt him to return to wherever he'd left her. 
under surveillance, whereupon we could recover, recover her and uh, hopefully save her life. All the efforts, all the strategies that we put in place were to that end. And the media strategy similarly, in, in terms of informing the public, was used to prompt Halliwell to return by encouraging him to consider that we were close to finding Sean of our own efforts. This logic is critical to the whole development of this case. Should Steve have just arrested Halliwell straight away and begun questioning him in the police station? After all, they knew Sean got in his car, and a short time later her phone pinged in the Savanac forest, and nobody had heard from her since. They knew he was lying to his employer about his whereabouts at the critical time of Sean's abduction. There are definitely police out there who would have taken him in for questioning, seized his car, and searched his home. The decision wasn't taken lightly, and Steve kept Sean's family informed. Sean's brother, Liam O'Callaghan, trusted Steve's judgement. Yeah, it, it was explained to us, and also I think we could see the, the bigger picture behind it. I think you trust in the experience and the professionalism of obviously the police force. So when they're telling you that they want him to be in surveillance, it's because they're hoping to find where Sean is, you know, and they think that putting him under surveillance will take, will take them to Sean. And I trust their judgment. You know, it did cross my mind, well, what, why don't they just arrest him, take him to Gable Cross and, and actually interview him and somehow maybe get him to disclose where, but, you know, I think, yeah, they're trusting in, in, in what they're telling you and, and the fact that, you know, surveillance should hopefully give them the right outcome because arresting him and maybe taking him to, to a police station might mean that he'll bottle up, so won't uh, disclose the information. Of course, for Halliwell to lead them to Sean, the police surveillance itself needed to be 100%. Steve's plan was to place a tracking device onto Halliwell's car, but he suffered a serious setback when, a few hours later on the Tuesday afternoon, his team told him it hadn't been possible. Being a taxi driver, Halliwell was just never far enough away from his vehicle to do it. The risk was too great. As a consequence, his team would have to watch Halliwell the old-fashioned way, a 12-vehicle crew using a technique called pivot peripheral surveillance. This is a skill set his officers were trained in but rarely got to do for real in our high-tech era. It would be risky. So this is old-school surveillance prior to satellite tracking, which is the, the standard equipment used now. So currently, if I was surveilling you, we'd try to put a, a tracking device on your car that's monitored, obviously, from a satellite signal. And you can um, you can conduct surveillance actually electronically at distance without um, without getting anywhere near to you. Because we couldn't get a, a, um, a lump on his car, we had to go back to the old techniques before these kind of facilities were available to us. And, uh, and that involves physically boxing the, the party under surveillance with a group of vehicles, usually 12 vehicles, in which they will parallel 
his route, they'll get ahead of his route, they'll get behind his route, they'll swap the vehicles behind, and they work on a pivot. So if he's going on a, in a particular direction, obviously if you've got 12 vehicles <laughs> always in his rear view mirror, it would show out. So one of the skills of a surveillance crew is to vary the, the um, point vehicle, the vehicle that's on his immediate um, rear, to parallel his route so you actually might leave him alone if you know that his route can be paralleled and it works on on that with him as the point on a um, peripheral surveillance deployment in which you swing your 12 vehicles round under the command of the surveillance commander to get either ahead around or behind him always keeping in reasonable contact the cost in police hours was significant Steve just hoped it would pay off. You know, you talk about 24 officers working 24-7, and we used other forces, particularly Avon and Somerset's surveillance crews, but mount a 24-7 open-ended surveillance commitment. I mean, it's, it's significant. Augmented by use of the helicopter from both Wiltshire and Avon and Somerset taking it in turns. It's a significant operation. And of course, he's operating in darkness in rural areas, which is extremely difficult to operate in as, uh, with that form of surveillance. Despite the practical challenges, the crews were able to keep a close watch on Christopher Halliwell as he went out and about that Tuesday evening. And very quickly, they started to see some unusual and disturbing behaviours in their suspect. He went to, uh, I think it was a petrol station where he put a poster up, two posters in fact, um, appealing for uh, sightings of Sean, he then used a blue fluid to, to clean the rear of the vehicle out. All of these things triggered responses from the um, surveillance crew. Later in the evening outside McDonald's, he deposited a perfume bottle, which was recovered by the surveillance team, thinking that that was a potential evidence of Sean. We might find a fingerprint or a DNA on that perfume bottle. All those items taken together obviously roused the suspicion, but it's back to the point around making assumptions. Because nothing that we saw under surveillance, other than starting with a preformed notion that Halliwell was the party responsible, in and of itself represents evidence at all. With his prime suspect apparently disposing of evidence before the surveillance team's eyes, Steve, as the senior decision maker, was faced with a tough call. Does he keep the surveillance going, hoping it would lead them to Sean? Or does he arrest Halliwell to preserve any evidence that might exist? The question was asked of me by the surveillance commander, do you want us to move in, do you want us to arrest him? And the question, the equation is the same every time. So he's clearly destroying evidence. It clearly adds massive weight to our suspicion that we've got the right person. This isn't an innocent taxi driver, but it's somebody who um, is in all probability. You have to watch yourself that you don't get drawn into this whole mushroom cloud of suspicion formed on a flawed premise, which can easily happen. But despite the pressure, Steve couldn't ignore the possibility that Sean could still be alive. So forming a lovely evidential case and causing Sean's death is not the right operational decision. So of course we have to continue, of course you have to bite your lip because you're, this goes contrary to all your instincts. Grab him, search his house, search his car, see if you can find some forensic trace. So you find forensic traces of Sean in the car. Great, 
does that bring Sean O'Callaghan back in the absence of any comment in interview? Well, it doesn't. So clearly you have to keep going. And picking up Christopher Halliwell for questioning presented another problem. As a taxi driver, he could have said, sure, I picked her up, but I dropped her off. And the police would have no way of knowing if it was true. It was Halliwell's odd behaviour under surveillance that made Steve feel certain they had the right man. Got to keep going until he's prompted to return. And of course, it's, you're on a knife edge, and as this surveillance operation continued, you know, there's only one person that's responsible for that. Well, certainly as events turned out, nobody else takes any accountability for it, and that's me personally. You know, is this worth the risk? Um, weighing up the operational options available to me, there was nothing else I could do. So he can come into custody, and he can give a no-comment interview or, or whatever he wants to do, or he can... I mean, if he was the wrong person, of course, and said at first approach, well, I'm a taxi driver, I dropped off at a certain point, then it would make sense to criticise subsequently, because his behaviour wasn't consistent with that, as reported back from the surveillance crew. His behaviour wasn't one of, you know, if he had been the taxi driver, why hadn't he contacted the police to say, I've been the taxi driver? And it was a risk as Steve was about to find out. The limitations of the surveillance method became dangerously clear when, around 1am in the dead of night and the most difficult of circumstances, Chris Halliwell slipped out of sight of his pursuers. Needless to say, it was a harrowing moment for Steve. Physical surveillance in the way I've described is enormously difficult and the dedication of those surveillance teams just cannot express my admiration enough. And losses happen because you're operating in a rural area in the hours of darkness. So of course, if he's on a road and you've got a 12 vehicle surveillance crew there, he's not going to be very covert. So, you know, these are expert professionals. They did a, a brilliant job, but they did lose him for a period of time during the Tuesday night. And when they picked up on him again, he'd stopped his car in a remote country lane, got out of the vehicle, apparently poured an accelerant on something and set it alight. Now, the officers obviously tried to remain covert and moved in to recover that. It was just a burnt out mass. It was probably one of the, the last car seat covers. It may have been Sean's handbag. We'll probably never know. But the difficulty of maintaining that surveillance during those conditions uh, can't be overemphasized. But as suspicious as Halliwell's behavior was, as evidence, it didn't prove anything. The surveillance police could have intervened, but what did they have? Burnt material and suspicion, but nothing concrete. And Sean was still missing. And you have to try and be, remain objective, but you know, burning things in the middle of the night necessarily adds to the weight of suspicion. So you make the arrest at that point, what have you got? Well, you've got a burnt remains, you've got some forensic opportunities from material seized, and you might very well have a case there, you might do. But have you got Shana Callahan back in the event of a no comment interview? Well, you haven't, have you? So clearly the right answer in terms of operational decision-making has to be, you've got to keep going because this is a crime in action. This is about kidnap. This, the first priority is saving the life of Shana Callahan. Nothing else comes close to mattering as much. 
The decision wasn't made lightly. Steve slept very little that night. On the Wednesday, he wanted to increase the pressure on Halliwell. He decided to release more details to the press that would let Halliwell know they were getting closer. At the same time, Steve pulled the public out of Savanac Forest, which would give Halliwell the space he needed to return there if he wanted to. It was another risky step. None of the information I put out was untrue. That was the first and most important thing. In terms of making use of the media, to talk to one individual, he's actually got a bold and extraordinary move. In terms of keeping the good offices of, of the media as a corporate body, if they feel they're being manipulated, um, that's obviously a very high risk strategy. I don't think I certainly never saw it in those terms, but I couldn't simply state to them that we're trying to, we're trying to talk to Halliwell as an individual through the messages I'm putting out. But I'd written a sequence of, of information releases which by putting them out in that drip feed method uh, would indicate to him that we're closer and closer to finding Sean, culminating in uh, an almost blatant statement that we know the car that she was abducted in being, being his car. Sean's mother, Elaine Pickford, remembers having the logic of these decisions explained to her. We were kept up to date with what was going on. I think we were told about the fact of Sean being picked up by a vehicle, that they, but they hadn't been able to identify the vehicle. Uh, but they came round again and said that they had now got use of AMPR and specialists to look at it, and that they had now actually been able to identify the vehicle and therefore the owner and that somebody was under surveillance. And they, they explained that they would be calling off the searches at Savanac because they had somebody under surveillance and they wanted that if he might have returned to where Sham was. Um, so that's the reason that they called off the searches at Savanac, but that obviously the public weren't aware of the reasons they were doing that but we as a family were. As a key reporter on the story, Steve Brody was on the receiving end of this unorthodox media playbook. Police forces throughout the country, Wiltshire is no exception, when they want the media's help, they will give you almost anything to get you interested, to keep the story on the programmes, to keep it in the newspapers. And if you have information, you will use it by the very beast that we now work for uh, in 24-hour rolling news. You need new stories. The police know this. They know that if they give you something, you will invariably use it. There's no way that it will be ignored. It will be used, especially moving pictures. And that's what they did. They drip-freed it in to keep it in the headlines. They don't give it to you all at once. They don't do that because they know you'll have one hit and you might have gone to another story. What they do is they drip-feed information to people on television and radio and in newspapers to keep the story in the headlines, which is what they want. It's in their interests to be in the public domain, and they did that very well. This media strategy would later come under scrutiny, but even at the time, Steve was well aware how high the stakes were. By now, it was Wednesday afternoon. I asked 
Pat Ginty to come and see me, the gold commander. So he was my immediate boss providing governance over this investigation. So it was me and Pat Ginty, Deb Peach was there. And I said, look, exactly the circumstances, this is what we're trying to do. The most important thing is finding Sean O'Callaghan. There are risks because we've got this media strategy. We're trying to encourage Christopher Halliwell to return to wherever he's left Sean O'Callaghan. But the pressure of coming close to capture, people can act in all kinds of ways, one of which is suicide. And uh, that is a risk. If he commits suicide, we'll never find Sean because only he knows where she is, if he's the right offender, the right person, that is. And we'll also have direct culpability for his death, death under police surveillance, death in, in custody. I have a duty of care to Christopher Halliwell under these circumstances. So I explained that to Pat Ginty and I said, I shall take full and total responsibility for this. I can think of no other operational options available to me. And this is what I'm pursuing. Continuing with the strategy was not solely Steve's decision. With his boss on side, the team decided to give it more time. After the huge search already of Savanac Forest with no result, Christopher Halliwell was their only hope of locating Sean. Still, it put them all on a knife's edge. And in fairness to uh, Pat Ginty, he said, no, we'll stand together, Steve. If you, you know, I've briefed a senior officer on the issues in this case and what I'm doing. He has the option to shut me down and say, no, you will, <laughs> we're not going to pursue this line because the potential for it going wrong is huge. If he commits suicide, it's career terminal, but it's also the death of Sean, isn't it? What if the media turn on us, etc.? So uh, he had the option to do that, but he, he said he'd stand by me. But we neither, neither I, I couldn't take the pressure of carrying this on for any indefinite period of time, but I couldn't see what else we could do. To this day, I can't see what else we could do other than pursue and hope that Halliwell returned to Sean. Now, what we tacitly agreed was that We'll have to resolve this by seven o'clock the following day. The clock was now ticking on Steve's surveillance operation and on Halliwell's freedom. Now there was a time limit. Whatever happened, he would be arrested by Thursday evening. In the meantime, Steve was keen to know more from Halliwell. He wanted to hear directly from the horse's mouth about his alibi and get his version of events concerning his whereabouts during the previous Friday night and Saturday morning. He also wanted Halliwell's DNA. But he didn't want to blow their cover by arresting him. So they came up with a better idea, to approach all Swindon's taxi drivers for a DNA sample and an explanation of their whereabouts on the night of the abduction. At 1pm on Wednesday, two officers visited Halliwell. They were not reassured by his explanations, and neither was Steve. Halliwell had told the two officers the same lie he had told his employer, that he had gone home at 1.30 on the Saturday morning. CCTV footage told a different story. You see, the alibi account was clearly a lie an easy to disprove lie because we had the CCTV footage. 
So if he, he gave an alibi account about logging off with his taxi firm going home, well, that's demonstrably untrue because he's on CCTV in the high street at the pertinent time, which adds to my decision-making process in terms of whether to ensure that we've got the right person. And people in hindsight always say, well, it was obvious, obviously him on the basis of the NPR read, but no, it isn't. It really isn't. But it was when the officers asked for his DNA swab that things really got interesting. The officers told Steve that Halliwell had started shaking and had come close to tears. He told the officers he was emotional about Sean's disappearance because he had two teenage daughters himself. But Steve believed there could be something else on his mind. His last conviction was in 86, so his DNA wasn't on record. Obviously, you want a DNA profile in the event of forensic traces being found, fingerprints and, and um, DNA. We've picked up some pieces from the surveillance on the night of the Tuesday night, including this perfume bottle. So we want to put him forensically on that, but preferably him and Sean on that, which give us reasonable indication that they were, they were together in time and space, as it were. But also, the notion of taking a DNA swab, buckle swab, with a, a mouth swab, indicates to him that actually there's a forensic issue here. It was all designed to slowly build the pressure and tighten the net around Christopher Halliwell. And judging by his reaction, the pressure was working. So I've told him through the media that Look, we're getting close to finding Sean. We've got this line search going on. He's, he even turned up there, apparently, according to uh, uh, certain journalists. He could see the effort we're going on. He knows whether we're close or otherwise. And he's got to ask himself the question once we've taken his DNA swab. Are you happy that if we find her and she's not alive, that your forensic traces aren't on her? And of course he wasn't, which is why he was shaking like a, like a leaf and exhibiting all the signs of panic. So it was important as an investigative piece to, to get that information. You need the DNA if he's a person of interest or a suspect. But also the psychological issue in terms of, are you happy that you've cleared your forensic traces? We say we're going to find, this is the media strategy, we are going to find Sean. When we find her, we've now got your DNA profile. Are you happy that you've cleared, cleared the decks on that, which is another idea of prompting him to return. Because if, if she's going to be found, this is on the assumption she's not alive, of course, if she's going to be found and his forensic traces are on her, then he'll be convicted of her abduction or rape or, or whatever happened. Shortly after this, at exactly 5pm on Wednesday the 23rd of March, Steve formally named Christopher Halliwell as a suspect in the policy book. A major moment in any crime investigation. From this point, the whole team was focused like a laser on one man. Less than 24 hours later, Steve Fulcher would come face to face with Christopher Halliwell in a meeting that would change both their lives forever. On the next episode of The Detective's Dilemma, 
it was at that point, it was at that juncture, that Steve Fortune decided to take an extraordinary gamble. Almost unprecedented, almost unprecedented. Her life is my responsibility. All I could do was plead with him. <laughs>